0: What does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? Why in the world are we going to be talking about that this morning instead of going into our class? The reason that we're going to have this discussion this morning is because Focus Press, are you all familiar? How many are familiar with Focus Press? Brad Harrow, are you familiar with what has been going on in the podcast that they recently put out? All right, I see a few people nodding their heads. On June the 12th, Focus Press did a podcast. They call their podcast, Thinking Deeper. And these three guys, their names are across the bottom, Jack Wilkie, Joe Wilkie, and Will Harb. Will is um, Brad Harb's son. They did a, pro- a podcast entitled, Is Drinking a Sin? And they also discussed some other topics. They talked about marijuana and some things of that nature. And it really has rocked the Brotherhood because they said drinking alcohol is not forbidden in the Bible. And they go through to make a number of arguments. Uh, These are not new. These things have been taught for years. Uh, Brother Ralph Gilmore has argued these same arguments at freed hardman University for years, which has, uh, I think, shaken the faith of a lot of young preachers. Which is one of the things that I have not appreciated about Ralph Gilmore in the Bible department at Freed-Hardeman. Um, someone tried to argue with me and said Ralph Gilmore did not hold that position. And so, uh, I found it because he argued it on the open forum at Fried Hardeman for three days straight. And so, I found it and uploaded it to YouTube. And so, if anyone wants to see that particular one, it is there now. GBN has done two very excellent videos in which we deal, number one, the first video just deals with social drinking. And the second one answers the arguments that people make. It is one of the most thorough refutations that I have ever seen of this and so uh, not because GBN did it, but uh, the research on it is really, really good and so if you encounter this then I would encourage you to check out these videos. Now I may not be able to cover all of this today, but I thought that it would be a good thing We had 103 people today in attendance. Just got that, so down a little bit from last week, but uh, that's still good to know, and uh, we don't have a board anywhere where we post that. I guess we need to to, uh, get one of those. Um, Incidentally, being in our own building like this is so nice, it just makes us feel legitimate, and uh, what an attractive auditorium it is. We have really been blessed And uh, I saw a video this, I'm a totally chase a rabbit here, get off track, but I saw a video on YouTube this week and they were talking about uh, the nature of small congregations. And they said that surveys have been done and uh, they have studied this extensively and that small congregations, 100 people or less, have more active people, more people participate, the rate of return is higher and that people give more in congregations of 100 or less. And I thought that was very interesting, but I think that we would probably attest to the fact that uh, that is true. When you get to a large congregation, you get to the point where a lot of people just tend to sit and uh, they don't put themselves to work. And so I think that's been one of the great blessings uh, that we've had here Everyone has stepped up and we appreciate that so very much. What I want to do in this particular class is I want to go through some of the arguments that these guys have made because a number of people have watched this and they've said, well, Focus Press and Brad Harrow, they've got credibility and people appreciate them and so if they've said it, then it must be legitimate. Others, preachers and uh, brotherhood organizations have stood up and really protested and said, this is false doctrine. The Texas School of Preaching put out a long document going through every argument that they made and they have uh, sought to answer all of these. So, what I've done is I made a list. Uh, I didn't cover every argument they made, but I covered a number of them. And I want us to go through them and talk about it because the idea that the Bible does not condemn drinking alcohol is ridiculous. And the idea that uh, their arguments that they have made, they're shallow, they are not well studied, and I'm shocked to see something this week coming out of Focus Press. These two fellows by the name of Wilkie, though they are members of the Lord's Church and preachers, They frequently put out very, very weak material. Will Harob is new. He has just started doing this. Typically, Brad Harob has put out conservative material. But uh, this is a very great disappointment with um, uh, Focus Press and Brad Harob because after they started coming under attack, Brad Harob stood up and defended them. Of course, his son's involved in it. But uh, I thought we need to answer these things. As we go through these arguments, we may not cover them all today. We may continue it next week. But I want you to feel free to participate, ask questions, make comments, because not only do they argue that alcohol is okay, they argue that marijuana is okay. And so it is very strange. Now, they do say... Well, we we don't think you should do it because it hurts your influence and things of that nature, but they say that as far as the Bible's concerned, it is okay. All right, here is the very first argument that they make. They say the Bible does not forbid drinking, only drunkenness. Actually, let me skip uh let's see. This is this is not the right one. I've got these out of order here. Let's see here. How did I do this? Well, the PowerPoint might be out of whack here. The first thing that they say is this. They say that drinking is not a sin, but it's unwise. It's not a sin, but it's unwise. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, Paul writes to the Ephesian brethren, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is." Two times in this passage the Bible commands us not to be unwise, but to be wise. If the Lord commands us to do something and we ignore it, it is a sin. They are arguing that drinking, social drinking is not a sin, but it's unwise. So they're saying it's okay to do something that's, that's unwise, but it's not a sin. That does not mesh. With what the Bible says. This is a ridiculous statement that they start with. I don't know how in the world I got this thing so out of whack. Uh, I am utterly confused how that happened. But um, anyway, the second argument that they make is, Jesus actually made alcoholic wine as His first miracle. And they argue that wedding feast in the ancient world, the ancient Bible lands, was always alcoholic wine. First, we need to understand it is not the case that every time we see the word wine in the Bible that it is alcoholic wine. I remember when I was in college that I had a professor and uh, he was a very ungodly man, but he walked into class one day and just opens up and he says, you know, I wish I had a friend who could turn water into wine. And um, everyone kind of laughed. And I raised my hand and I said, Jesus didn't make alcoholic wine. Why would you think that he did? And he just kind of blew me off and he moved on. But people see that Jesus made water into wine in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and therefore they argue that it's okay to drink wine. The word wine is a generic word in the Bible. In the New Testament, it comes from a word oinos. Sometimes, all that word means is the product of the grape, juice that comes from the grape. The Bible uses one word to describe grape juice, like we would call Welch's, and wine. We use two different words. If we are talking about grape juice, we, I usually call it Welch's, but it's, that's a brand name, is grape juice. If we're talking about alcoholic, we call it wine. Because of the difference in the way we label it versus the way the Bible labeled it, people get confused and they assume Jesus made alcoholic wine. In the Bible, when you see the word oinos, or the Hebrew word for wine, same thing, it refers to the fruit of the grape, the product of the grape, the juice. Now, how do you determine it then? It has to be by the context. Let me give you an example of this. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 31 says, you tell me which one this is. Do not look upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup, when it moves itself aright. At the last it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Which one do you think that's referring to? It's got to be alcoholic, right? The context tells you that. How about this one? Isaiah 16.10 says, in the vineyards there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting, the treaders shall not tread wine in their presses. Which one do you think that is? That'd be non-alcoholic. As soon as they get through squishing it out of the grapes, it hasn't even had time to ferment. It has to be non-alcoholic. How about this one, Isaiah 65, 8? Thus says the Lord, as new wine is found in the cluster. Which one would that be? It's non-alcoholic. How do we know that? He's talking about the juice when it is still in the grape. That's got to be non-alcoholic. And so, in all of these passages are Old Testament, and so this is the Hebrew word that's translated as wine. In the New Testament, there are actually five different Greek words for wine. The most common one is oinos. And so, here's the point I'm making. Just because you see the word wine in the Bible, you can't assume that it's alcoholic. You have to look at the context sometimes the context is hard to determine. Well, the argument is that in John chapter 2, when Jesus turned water into wine, they say that it is alcoholic wine. That's a ridiculous argument. Why? Number one, there's no evidence. There's nothing in the context to make you think that it is alcoholic wine. Well, they say all weddings back then used alcoholic wine. That's ridiculous. That would be like saying all weddings today use alcoholic wine. Do you think that you could? it would be a true statement if someone said, uh, most weddings today serve alcoholic beverages? Would that be a true statement? I, I think it would probably be true to say most weddings but certainly not all weddings. There's not evidence of all the weddings in ancient Palestine, and so it is an unfounded statement. Well, how about this statement that Jesus turned water into wine, alcoholic wine, and therefore He endorsed social drinking? The first thing I would say is this, the person who makes that statement First, has to prove that the oinos in that passage is alcoholic, which he cannot do. Secondly, I think if you look at the context, and I wish I had this up properly because I had all these verses up here, John chapter 2 and verse 10, after Jesus turned the water into, quote, wine, oinos, the governor of the wedding feast, they would have, we would call it the wedding coordinator. They had the governor of the wedding feast. He tasted this wine that Jesus made. This is what He said in John 2.10. He said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and after the guests have well drunk, then the inferior wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Now, there's a couple of things that I want you to notice. He said, normally what happens is people put out the good stuff and then the inferior stuff. And the idea is once they have drunk and they're not quite as sharp as they were, then they can switch out and put out the other stuff and people are not going to notice. The one thing I do notice is apparently at least this man's senses were still sharp. He could notice it. His senses had not been dulled, but notice particularly what he said is normally after everyone's had a lot to drink, then they put out the other stuff. Jesus, on this occasion, made 120 to 160 gallons of water that he turned into wine. This was after the people had well drunk. Do you have a problem with this? What this would mean is, if we're talking about alcoholic wine, after everyone has well drunk alcoholic wine, Jesus made 160 gallons more alcoholic wine for them to drink. Everybody understands that drunkenness is wrong. To get to the point that you are staggering is wrong. Even these guys argue that. They are arguing that the Son of God went to people who had already had a lot to drink, well drunk, the word means drunk freely, drunk where they had had plenty, and He made a hundred and sixty gallons more of alcohol. What would that wedding feast look like after that? You'd have a bunch of drunks at this wedding feast. This is not what the context teaches. I am shocked that these brethren would go there to make this argument. Here's the third argument. Any questions about that? Any comments? Uh Uh-huh. June? Okay? She said, "We can sleep before I said, "You're drunk now. Well, um, when I preached against social drinking at Willow Avenue, there were some people that got mad. Well, uh, they were sinning. They were wrong about that. And hold that thought because one of the arguments that they make is, if you want to drink it at home, in the privacy of your home, then it's okay. So we're actually going to get to that very argument here in a minute. Clay? What is the uh, Greek word in uh, verse 10 when it says well drunk? What does that mean? Uh, Let's see here. I think I've actually um, got the Greek word there. The word there means um, well drunk, drunk plenty. They've had um, quite a bit. Um, That's the idea of it. It means they'd had a lot to drink. Yeah, yeah. After they have had, what it means is after they've had plenty, then they would put out more. It doesn't mean they were drunken, but after they had had plenty. Okay, here's the third argument. You know how you are you come in from outside you're hot you want to drink water you drink that water and that's the best water you taste because you're thirsty at that point but after you've drank enough water for a little while and that thirst subsides then the water you have after that it's a little bit less important about that water you can drink tap water that's really not filtered doesn't have the best taste when you're a thirsty you you will uh, you, notice that it, it tastes badly but you're not going to keep drinking water when the parcel is full if it tastes bad Yeah. Yes. Um, This particular word can mean, I'm just looking it up in the Greek, um, it can mean uh, to get drunk, it can mean to become intoxicated, and it can mean that you've just had uh, a large quantity of it. And so uh, maybe that's where they get it, but um, obviously that's not what has happened here, because what you would have then is people are stone drunk, if that's what it means in this context, and then Jesus gave a bunch of drunk people 160 gallons more of alcohol to drink. Everyone agrees that that's not right. Josh? That's an excellent point because he's making the point, James 1.14 says, "Um, "...God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man." And if these people have drunk heavily, and if they're drunk, or they're not yet drunk, and Jesus gives them all of these large quantities of alcoholic wine, then He's tempting them. The context screams that this is not alcoholic wine. I don't know why people always go there. I understand why people who have no clue about the Bible go there because they think Jesus turned water into wine, and they assume that because of the English word. Any person who is a Bible student, I don't understand why they go there because the context says just the opposite of this. Now, the third argument, feel free to speak up. I'm glad to have interaction, but I've got 13 of these, and I'm on number two, so... Um, Here's number three. They argue the recreational consumption of beverage alcohol in the privacy of one's own home is acceptable to God. That's the point that June was just making that someone had said to her, and this is what people commonly argue, that if you want to consume it at your house in private, that that is okay. Think about this. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us something about the devil, that he's a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But notice how he starts this. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says, be sober. The idea of this text here is not literally the idea, don't be drunk with wine, but it literally means sober-minded. Don't have your senses affected or dull, but think in a sober-minded way. If you drink alcohol, it's going to hurt your ability to follow this. The biblical mandate, if you read Titus chapter 2 and verse 2, says that old men are to be sober. In Titus 2 and verse 6, it says that young men are to be sober. It says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 4, aged women are to teach the younger women to be sober. All men are to be sober-minded. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, and 7. So, is there an exception that if you're in the privacy of your own home, that it's okay not to be sober-minded? and it's okay to lose this quality. And I want you to think about this argument too. Not only does this contradict this, they make the argument in John chapter 2 that Jesus turned water into alcoholic wine at the wedding feast, and then they turn around and say that if you want to drink in the privacy of your home, that that's okay. you see a problem with those two? If Jesus made water into wine at the wedding feast, was that private drinking? That wasn't private. He's, he's doing this for a public gathering of all of these people so that they can get drunk, and then their very next argument is, if you want to drink in the privacy of your home, then it's okay. Those two things don't even fit. Oftentimes when people argue error, the, their own errors contradict each other. So, Jesus made public wine for people to drink and party and to get drunk together, but if you want to drink in the privacy of your own home, then that's okay. Those two things don't mesh with each other, and there is a command after command after command in the New Testament that says Christians are to be sober-minded. We're to think clearly. We're not to dull our senses. Why? Because the devil is seeking to get us. Don't do anything that's going to affect your senses that might lead you into sin. Why? Because the devil is waiting to get you. Here's the fourth thing that they say. They said, this is a quote, We are not condoning kids go out and drink a ton. We are not condoning that kids go out and drink a ton. Yeah, they are. By implication, they are, if you tell a bunch of kids, it's not actually sinful to do this, but don't go out and drink a ton. What have you told them, this is not really a wrong thing to do, but just, in fact, here's the term they use, they say, we have to know our limits. What are the implications of that? Let me ask you this question, how would you know your limits? How would you know your limit? You got to find your limit. How are you going to find your limit? That's the only way that you're going to find your limit is by going over your limit. You're going to have to get drunk at some point, and then you're going to have to have the sense of mind to know all right, it was at six beers that that was my limit. Now, who determines what is your limit? Okay, and when you think about your limit, is your limit just when you get a little foggy? Or is your limit when you start having bad judgment? Or is your limit when you fall down on the floor? Or is your limit when you puke all over the place? Where's your limit? You see, alcohol starts affecting you with the very first drink. And so, what level of impairment are we going to call our limit? When you say to teenagers, we don't recommend you drink, but it's not a sin, really you have, and and they affirm repeatedly in here that it's not a sin, you're really given at least a tacit approval of drinking, no matter what you want to say. Now they state repeatedly that drinking is extremely dangerous, but they say it's not sinful. It's extremely dangerous, but it's not sinful. Can you name any biblical principle that encourages or endorses dangerous moral activity? Does the Bible ever endorse dangerous moral activities? The Bible does not do that. In fact, this is what the Bible says, the righteous man, in fact, Josh did a sermon on this. The righteous man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or seat sit in the way of the scoffle. The Bible says you avoid things like that. You run from things that are edgy that could get you into trouble. If something might might lead you down the wrong path, you don't stand there, you don't sit there, you don't join it. You run from it. In fact. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee from youthful lust. Not, it's okay. Just, uh, just be careful with it. Flee from it. 1 uh, Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from all every appearance of evil. Frank? Yeah, you mentioned Psalms 1 Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scornful. You'll notice that progression there. He's walking, then he stops, and he talks, and before you know it, he's sitting in the seat this morning. Well, that can be the same thing as being in your home and start drinking. That progression is going to continue. So then he's going to be walking, and then sitting, and then passing out, according to uh, to this reasoning. Okay, here's the fifth argument that they make. They say that the consumption of alcohol is a Romans 14 issue. It's only sin if it becomes a stumbling block to other people. Now, if you are familiar with the book of Romans and you know it well, when someone says something is a Romans 14 issue, that means it's a matter of conscience. Romans 14 is teaching that something might not in and of itself be a sin. He, he mentions eating of meat offered to idols, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10, he says eating meat offered to idols is not a sin. We know that if you buy it in the marketplace, that's not sin. We know that an idol is nothing, but if it makes your brother stumble, or if you seem to be endorsing the idol, then don't do it. So when you get to Romans 14, he discusses this. If there is something that you know is not a sin, but it causes your brother to stumble, don't do it and lead your brother into sin. Now, he gives the example of the meat offered to idols. And so, if you know that eating this meat, you bought it in the marketplace, but you knew that earlier it was offered to an idol, because what would happen is they would take meat, they would offer it to an idol, and then when it was done and they had left over, they would sell it in the marketplace, and a Christian might come along and buy it, and he'd take it home and he would eat it. Some Christians thought to themselves, I can't eat that. I know it was offered to an idol and it bothers my conscience and I can't do it. And so Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 8, it's not wrong. If you want to buy that and take it home, you're not sitting there endorsing the idol, you're not giving money to the idol, you're not sitting at the you bought it, at Winn-Dixie or wherever, you know, in the market, not Win dixie but in the marketplace. What's the point? It's far removed from the idol at that point. But he says if it bothers your conscience, don't do it. Romans 14 is talking about those type of things. So when someone says a Romans 14 issue, they mean it's a conscience issue. And then these guys are arguing that drinking alcohol is just a Romans 14 issue. That is, don't make your brother stumble if you do this. Alcohol doesn't fit this because alcohol is a sinful issue. Josh? One thing that's also could to be brought up in reference to this issue is the fact that when are talking about the meat offered to idols, it's something that inherently has no effect, has no importance except for that which was given to it by people. Yeah. That's, that's right. I'll give you a modern day example of a Romans 14 issue. There are some Christians who believe that it is wrong to put up a Christmas tree in their house. They say they believe that it is uh, linked to uh, paganism or Catholicism or denominationalism, that you're celebrating the birthday of Jesus and there's no authority for that. Other Christians say, we put up a Christmas tree and it has nothing to do with the celebration of Jesus or Catholicism. It's just a family tradition and we do nothing religious with it whatsoever. I think that'd be a modern day issue. A person could do that in good conscience, but another person says, if I do it, I'm sinning against my conscience. Well, that would fall into this category. Drinking doesn't fall into this category. Fornication doesn't fall into this category. Stealing doesn't fall into this category. You can't take something that the Bible labels as a sin and say, well, as long as long uh, you can do it as long as it doesn't offend your brother. I want you to think about this argument too. The consumption of alcohol is a Romans 14 issue. It only becomes a sin if it's a stumbling block for others. And they just said that in John chapter 2, Jesus made alcoholic wine, publicly and gave it to all these people to drink. They said, it's a Romans 14, it's a conscience issue, as long as you don't make anyone else's conscience be offended. How could Jesus have done this for all these people at the wedding and know that it would be okay for them and not offend anybody's conscience? See how they contradict themselves repeatedly? The previous argument, as long as you do it in the privacy of your own home, it's okay. And yet Jesus made it publicly for... Their own own arguments are self-contradictory. And let's see here. I know that... um, We're supposed to stop at 11, right? And it is 1101. So, all right. I tell you what, next week, I want to pick these up and I want to go through them because they make 13 arguments and we are on number five. So, I would like to go through the rest of these to show you this is ridiculous. If you want to look this up and listen to their podcast, it's called Think Deeper and you can listen to it and then maybe you'll be a little more well-versed when we come back and uh, go over it and you can ask questions and we can discuss it. And I also would um, point you to the two GBN videos that answer this because they crush every one of these arguments uh, with the original language, book, chapter, and verse. Uh, we've done a good job with this. So anyway, we'll stop right there, and we'll pick up next week. Thanks.